Hello and welcome to the Learn Medical Art podcast where we share our tips, tricks and advice on the medical illustration and animation industry. I'm Emily Holden, a medical illustrator and animator. And I'm Anna Campbell, also a medical illustrator and animator. You can find our show notes and resources from this episode and more educational content, such as industry interviews, tutorials, and more at www.learnmedical.art. So joining us today is Avesta Rastan, a freelance scientific designer, animator, and biomedical communicator. Avesta has taken a plunge and is currently working successfully as a freelance medical illustrator after graduating from the University of Toronto's Biomedical Communications Master's Program. We love the work that Vesta creates and we're really excited to learn more about her process and day-to-day work. Let's get this conversation started. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome. Hi, Vesta. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. No problem. Thank you very much for agreeing to come on. Yeah, we're super excited <laughs> to have you on here. I'd love to start by learning how you ended up discovering your passion for medical illustration and scientific design. I mean, for me, there wasn't really one moment that I can track it down to. It was something that I think kind of just naturally happened. Uh, you know, I was one of those people who I, I never really knew what I wanted to do next. I never had a clear path. And then things just kind of came forward and I went for them and then I ended up here. <laughs> so, you know, when I was a kid, I like most people in this field, I loved art and I painted a lot as a kid, did a lot of after school art programs. And then in high school, I started to do more scientific based paintings. So a lot of my paintings like were based on some sort of scientific concept. My mom was an environmental scientist. Also, she did art on the side just for fun. And my dad was a physicist at the time and did DJing on the side. So oh, amazing. You know, I had, <laughs> yeah, so I had like really great scientific and artistic influences from a young age. And they always fostered my artistic side and my curiosity for understanding how the world works. And that's fundamentally why I went into life sciences in undergrad was because of that curiosity about how the world works. And then the first couple of years were pretty hard because I didn't really love any of my classes, which was kind of sad <laughs> for me because I was like, maybe I want to be a surgeon because you know, you get to use your hands kind of like an artist does. I just wasn't feeling it. I wasn't passionate about it. And it wasn't until, you know, my third and fourth year where I really found my place volunteering as a graphic designer for a bunch of different clubs. Very cool. Yeah. So I, you know, self-taught myself graphic design and layout design. I did some layouts for this fashion and lifestyle magazine. I also helped to found a neuroscience conference and created the brand identity. And then I volunteered as a graphic designer for the Alma Mater Society's media service. And then in my last year, I was the graphic design manager for that service. Oh, very cool. So (laughs) I did lots of graphic design. And, you know, that's where I kind of found my people was after school, not in my classes. I remember the moment when I discovered the BMC program, because that was my entryway into the field. And it was, I think, the end of third year, I was studying for exams with one of my friends in the library. And we were both freaking out about our futures, <laughs> looking up grad programs. I remember I was looking up neuroscience programs in Europe, and then she found the BMC program. And then she she knew I liked science and art, so she sent it to me. And when I saw it, I literally, you know, I knew I was like, I need to apply to this. And I only applied to that one program. I didn't even do any more research. I was like, yep, this is it. <laughs> and luckily, I got in. But I I just went all in, and it worked out. Oh wow, that's wow, awesome. 
a nice story. So you just went straight into your master's yeah. after your undergrad. Since I discovered it at the end of my third year, you know, I felt there wasn't really a need to take a break since I knew I wanted to do it. I might as well just go right in. And I was actually pretty lucky in that one of my fourth year professors, he taught cardiorespiratory sciences. Um, he had a student previously who went into the program. So he was really familiar with it and thought it was super awesome. He actually created a job for me as a medical illustrator where I created vector-based images for this new fully online Bachelor of Health Sciences program at Queen's University. So I spent the summer, you know, making illustrations for like biochemistry topics, uh, a lot of pathology, anatomy, things like that. And that was kind of my first taste of medical illustration. Oh, wow. Such a nice story. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) I got super lucky. so good. (laughs) I can imagine many of our listeners just have the same kind of worries, especially in undergrad, and then just hearing how well your story turned out. I'm sure it's going to inspire many people to try and go along your same footsteps as well. And I think, you know, on that note, so many people that enter this field kind of have a very similar backstory. I think, you know, the way to really figure out what you want to do and and end up there is follow what you're curious about. Mm -hmm. And usually that kind of leads you in the right direction, even if you don't know what you're doing. (laughs) That's brilliant. But you you seem to have a great mindset for just being self-assertive and learning things that you taught yourself, graphic design. That was absolutely amazing. I wanted to ask a little bit about what, what did you do to prepare for the BMC program? Because their portfolio, they have some requirements, right? So did you include your medical illustrations and stuff like that? So that was actually after I got accepted. So I didn't have any of that at the time. The way I applied to the program, I don't recommend to most people because <laughs> I am like obsessive, compulsive, procrastinator. It's pretty bad. Like I work under pressure. So I left my portfolio to literally like the last minute. It was Christmas and I'm like trying to draw multiple images <laughs> and because you needed like a figure drawing piece. You needed something showing magnification or tension. You needed specific things and I didn't have any of them already. So I attempted to start it in the summer and then didn't finish it until Christmas of fourth year. I don't recommend that, you know, do it in the summer. <laughs> and I'm not a good example. I think with the BMC program, they allow you to submit early and then the professors will review Ooh. your portfolio and oh, will cool. give you tip, which is a, a great opportunity because, you know, all the professors at BMC are really supportive and they want the best for you. Yeah. So they're going to give good advice. So I definitely, you know, recommend that to anyone applying. That's so nice. Oh, wow. That's really nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't hear many like art schools doing something like that. So this is really great to hear that like mm-hmm. a graduate medical illustration schools are doing that. So the program, the type of um, students they admit, they're very science heavy. So you had a great advantage there with your background in science, right? Mm-hmm. Did they mm-hmm. accept anyone with a non-science background? Do you know? Yeah, actually, in every year, there's always usually maybe one or two people who did have uh, an arts background or someone in my second year who was above me, she had a history background. So there's definitely people from various backgrounds with a science background. I think it tends to be easier because learning science is the hard part. So if you already know how to learn science, you you have a bit of a leg up. But you know, if you have an arts background and take science on the side, just to get those required courses that you need to be accepted, then that's totally fine too. And those people do just as well. That's really great to hear. Can you give our listeners just a little bit of an insight into what your course structure is like with the program? It's a two-year master's program. Essentially, the first year is teaching you all the fundamentals. On the art side, it's a lot of learning traditional techniques, such as carbon dust painting, and then learning Adobe Illustrator, learning Adobe Photoshop. Also, we did a little bit of Cinema 4D for an introduction to animation. On the science side, we took an intensive anatomy course that 
involved cadaver dissections and we did sketches in the lab as well. So that was probably the most intense first year course. And we also took molecular biology. So, you know, how proteins work, structure and function, that kind of stuff. With each of the science courses, we did art projects along with it. We also did a data visualization course and then a surgical observation course in the first year where we were paired with a surgeon. We went into the operating room and then we sketched out a surgery. And yeah, that was really cool. And then in the second year, that is when you really get to hone your skills and you pick one of two paths. So there's the 3D animation path and then there is the interactive media design class. So I did the 3D animation path. I took courses in Autodesk Maya. And then we also, everyone has to do medical legal visualization, pathological illustration, and then you get to pick some electives as well. And my elective was 2D animation, but some people learned JavaScript, some people learned Unity, so you can tailor it to your needs. That's so cool. So many choices to decide. I feel like I would be like, oh, (laughs) it is actually pretty streamlined. Um, Oh, and obviously, most importantly, there's the year long master's research project or thesis that you're literally working on it for a whole year. So it's very big undertaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all of the animations that come out, I'm always completely blown away by. And your master's project, it feels like a very complete animation that comes out at the very end. So it must be really satisfying when you get to the end of it and you can see that you've got this really nice big portfolio piece at the end of it. No, I definitely, those animations that come out of the BMC program are one of the biggest draws to the program. Mm -hmm. When I was applying, I was looking at that and I was like, how am I ever going to make something like that? I don't even know how to do 3D anything. (laughs) So yeah, at the end, having that, it's really impressive how far you've come from Mm -hmm. knowing nothing about animation to creating a full animation on your own. The quality level is like studio level quality that you and the other students have done. And it's really, really impressive. Uh, We're going to put in the show notes a link to your master's research project on your website. Everyone should go check it out because I think the way that you presented it, the back end stuff and the behind the scenes content, it's really, really helpful to have people understand how you break everything down and created it. Yeah, thank you. It's kind of funny now, like seeing it, I only see all the flaws. <laughs> I know it's something to be proud of and I never want to touch it again, but I'm very happy I did it. <laughs> I think it's really great. And I think there always seems to be a really nice sense of storytelling and stuff with all of the stuff that comes out of the program. I think that's one of the things that I find really fascinating about it. Was there anything kind of like in your training or your animation training that was like specifically looking at like narrative storytelling and things like that? Or is it kind of self-directed? It's partly self-directed, but Mm -hmm. we do have a lot of guidance from our professors. In the summer between first and second year, we actually take that whole summer to write a very in-depth proposal, which involved doing a lot of research on best storytelling techniques and, you know, the benefits of 3D animation and storytelling devices with visuals, connotations of color and how to make things more interesting from a storytelling perspective. I never heard the word storytelling so much as I did in this program. (laughs) So they really nail it into you. (laughs) That's really good to hear because it's it's very, very important. So (laughs) yeah. So what happened after you graduated? Because you didn't go full-time freelance right after, did you? You went to work for a studio. I started working after graduation in October at Invivo Communications and pretty well known in in the field. I'm very excited about that. And they actually had a new role, a completely new role called Creative Innovation Associate, Mm. which sounded super vague, like no one knew what that was. But for me, you know, I was always, I get interested by way too many things. I can't pick 
one thing or another. Like I didn't want to do pure animation or pure design or pure illustration. I wanted to do a bit of everything. And this creative innovation position was helping more so in the concepting phase mm-hmm. and with pitch decks to clients. So I got to kind of touch a lot of different projects and do a lot of the concept designs for those, which was great for me at the time because I didn't really know what I wanted to focus on. So that allowed me to explore a lot of different things. What a great experience. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Now you know how to write proposals and pitch decks and everything like that and put it together in a cohesive narrative. That's so impressive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I I felt like I got very lucky with this job. And, you know, I was hired at the same time with Mark Balan. I don't know if you know him. He's from my program. Mm-hmm. I think 1T, or sorry, everyone says 1T7, but it's a weird Toronto slang <laughs> in 2000, 2017. Um, so we got hired at the same time and I knew him. He was actually the first person who showed me around the BMC camp you know, I was lucky. I also got to start with a friend. That's great. I honestly, I feel bad sometimes because I feel like everything just kind of happened naturally for me. And I, I feel very <laughs> fortunate. Don't feel bad. I don't think so. I think it's all your hard work. Yeah, you should uh, be very proud of that. <laughs> Well, thank you. <laughs> I don't think anyone can just start a new position that's never been done before, that's so exploratory in its studio, like how you've done it. And I think it's a testament to your mindset and your innovative ability that you were able to do it well. So yeah, you know, I think uh, I think you're pretty good. I think you're pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. No, I I definitely I I really like exploring new things and I like the unknown. You know, I'll probably tell you in a bit my journey to being a freelancer, but that was also you know a big risk. So you're working full time in a studio, but what was it that made you kind of want to jump into this freelance world? It is kind of a long story, but I'll give you the very shortened version of it. You know, if I had to distill it down to one reason, I would say COVID-19 is the reason. (laughs) But uh, to give you some context. Yeah, back in March, when it was declared a pandemic, you know, in the first couple of weeks after that, there was just such a crazy onslaught of information every single day, new research being published. And I feel like everyone was just really overwhelmed with information at that time. And I was trying to think of ways that I could personally help. Because in a global pandemic, everyone kind of has their own part that they need to do. So I was trying to figure out what mine was. You know, I figured as a medical illustrator, this was a great opportunity to use my skills to try and communicate something about COVID. So I did a lot of research on my own and I tried to figure out, you know, what would be the most interesting information for people in the public. After lots of research, you know, I was doing this all after work hours because I was still at Invivo. I decided to do a one page infographic. Uh, You've probably seen that online. Mm -hmm. In early April, I published it on Twitter and it literally went viral. So (laughs) it got over 2 million views and it was shared on World Economic Forum. Oh, wow. It was really crazy. And then Discover Magazine, they reached out to me and they wanted to uh, publish a feature on it in their magazine. You know, it really blew up. It was really shocking to me that something that I just created, you know, for fun, but, you know, for educational purposes, that something like that could really have an impact. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of what initially led me to think about what other kind of things I could do to, you know, help the public and personal work. I'm very much an ideas person. So once this happened, I had so many other ideas. But in an industry job, you know, you're so limited by time. I got to the point where I also felt like I wasn't really progressing in my role. Mm -hmm. It started becoming more repetitive. I wanted a better creative challenge. I figured freelance would allow me to create a freedom to explore all these ideas that I had and hopefully, you know, have an impact in a way I couldn't have in 
industry. So that was kind of the reasoning behind it. It also, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I realized COVID, everyone's working from home. So I'm not going to experience the FOMO you normally get as a freelancer. Yeah, It's pretty funny, actually, because when I was in my master's program, I thought I would never want to go freelance. Oh. And, you know, <laughs> I didn't want to work alone. You know, I'm, a, I'm very much a people person. Mm -hmm. And I like going out and being in person. But with COVID, everything changed. So it changed my perspective on what freelance would be like. And I ended up very much enjoying it. You know, I don't actually mind working at home alone. <laughs> but I do miss, you know, the people interaction for sure. And then, you know, one last thing that really kind of made me realize maybe now is a good time to act on this, you know, where I was in my career and being in a young age where I don't have any dependents. And I'm, I have a pretty, you know, transient lifestyle right now. I'm not settled down into one city. Mm -hmm. I figured now would be a good time in my career to explore this. You know, as you get older, you start to set your roots more. Uh, I think it's harder to make that jump the older you get. That's amazing. Yeah. That's an inspiring story. I really like yeah. that. People always see career progression as always stepping up and up. But you can always go across mm -hmm. and come back to mm -hmm. it. You don't have to always just keep going up and up. And I like that you, mm -hmm. you give yourself the opportunity to explore options. Yeah, definitely. I uh, like what we we're discussing just about like having freelance as your base. Like you can always go back to that. Yeah. It's like you can dot around and try out all these different areas off the field, but then you've always got your freelance mm -hmm. net at the bottom as well. Could you just talk in general about the industry? Is there anything that our listeners should know about it or what kind mm -hmm. of person would suit working in this field? Any kind of insights mm -hmm. you have at all? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this industry is, you know, especially as a freelancer, I feel like I've realized how much demand there is for it. You know, there's so much untapped potential and I feel like there's kind of a discrepancy for the demand for the services those people don't know that you know, medical illustrators and biomedical communicators exist. So I just see so much potential and I feel like it's just going to continue to grow and evolve as there's new technology and new science. And there's always going to be a need for this kind of work because communicating science is integral to having a productive society <laughs> and for education in general. You know, just some examples also of the interesting kind of work that we get to do for those who maybe aren't familiar with uh, the field and maybe associate medical illustration with your, you know, traditional anatomical sketches and textbook mm. illustrations, mm -hmm. which, you know, that's the foundation of this field. And it's important to, you know, respect that and to appreciate how far it's come from that. But now, since 3D animation became a thing in the 90s, it's really blown up and the storytelling capabilities are literally endless. Whether it's creating a 2D animation science explainer, like those Kurtzgesagt videos, mm. which I love. They're great. You know, those yeah. are amazing. Yeah, they're so good. And it's an easy way to, you know, inspire people to learn. And then something like a 3D animation where maybe a pharma company has a new drug mm -hmm. and they need to teach physicians about the mechanism of action, you know, things like that. Or, you know, AR, VR, developing apps to explore complex structures in 3D or like also VR, what they're doing, teaching you know, surgeons to perform surgeries in VR mm -hmm. so that you save time from surgeons and also can potentially save lives of instead of practicing on real patients, you can practice <laughs> in virtual space, which is super cool. Mm -hmm. Also, people don't often realize that you could do things like brand identity and user interface design for med tech startups, mm -hmm. you know, Silicon Valley with all of their doctor on demand services and things like that. There's a lot of opportunities there. 
like literally it's endless. Um, I could keep going on with cool examples, <laughs> but I'll probably stop myself. No, that's a, that's a good list of cool examples. You've covered like a good wide range of that one. It's great. I think one more I should throw in though is yeah. educational gaming. Yes. A lot of people don't realize you can make video games that are science-based. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> that's yeah. also cool. So for me, I'm just, you know, I'm excited about how many different avenues you can explore within this field. Mm -hmm. And that's really what opened my eyes to this field was I think when I was in grade 11, you know, I loved art and science at the time. And I was trying to pick a university to go to. And I was having the whole struggle of what path do I pick? And one of my profs suggested medical illustration. But I was like, Ugh, you know, drawing textbook images. Mm -hmm. And like, I literally brushed it off, didn't think about it again <laughs> until I discovered the BMC program, because I just didn't realize what you could do with that kind of a, a degree oh what a roundabout so, path wow <laughs> yeah it was your calling all along <laughs> exactly oh. <laughs> you know there it's just such an interesting field and you know i think something that's exciting too is you're always getting to learn about the newest technology and the newest science if you're working in industry like somewhere like in vivo for example they have access to that newest technology so you know when the hololens 2 came out they were one of the first people to have it mm -hmm. so uh, that was really exciting like i had never actually tried an ar headset until i was at in vivo you know as a freelancer too you kind of get a different perspective you don't have access to all that new technology because it's really expensive yeah but you also get to work with scientists on the forefront of science so a lot of my projects, I would say most of them are working with people in academia who are publishing research. And that to me is super exciting because I'm learning about research that hasn't even been published yet. So that's super cool. That's exciting. And I find when you're working in industry, you don't really get to work with the little guy like that anymore. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a little bit of you have to pick and choose what you want to do. So maybe we can talk a little bit about your client base then. So is it mostly academia that you work with? Academia is probably the majority of my work, but I also do some stuff with uh, startups you know, biotech startups, uh, neurotech startups, things like that. Um, I also have done some things with a medical device company. I did something with a veterinary science company. So, you know, it's been a little bit over the board, but within science, like academia specifically, I find it's nice because it's really varied in terms of the subject material. Like I help create images for the microbiome and immunology stuff. And then I'll do something for neuroscience and then I'll do something for COVID or something. So it's a little bit, you know, it really varies. That's really cool. So well, what about your services then? You have experience in a lot of these VR high tech stuff. I'm sure you can consult on that. Well, what kind of services do you offer to your clients? I have a pretty low tech setup here at home. <laughs> you know, I, I'm still, I consider myself a recent grad. I only graduated last year. So I'm trying to I'm save up money. So much. Too. You've done so much. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess so. It's crazy in hindsight. It feels like forever ago that I graduated, but it really wasn't. You know, I don't have enough money saved up to invest in that cool high tech stuff. Um, you know, I don't actually have a desktop computer. I only work on the laptop, so I can't really do intensive 3D renders and things like that. Mm -hmm. So currently, most of what I do is 2D illustration and 2D animation. And that encompasses most of my services. But I also dabble in some user interface design. You know, with my background in graphic design, mm -hmm. it's kind of something I always like to do. But, you know, 3D has been put on the back burner a little bit but it's something that I want to keep up and I'd like to do more projects uh, involving that. So you mentioned your workstation slightly. So you're working on a laptop at the moment. So what mm -hmm. else do you have? Just like a Wacom drawing tablet and stuff or what, what's, what's your workstation setup? Yeah, I mean, my, my workstation setup is 
pretty simple. I have, you know, a 15 inch MacBook Pro mm. and uh, it was part of my funding for my research project, which was great. That so they got, great. you know, it has all the upgrades um, that you can get on a MacBook. So it is quite powerful for a laptop. I also have an 11 inch iPad Pro and an Apple Pencil and I use that a lot. <laughs> I did have a like an old bamboo Wacom tablet, but with the newest Mac update, it's not compatible anymore. So oh, no. yeah, oh, cool. so I literally just use my iPad for all oh, my wow. tablet needs now. And then I have a Philips 27 inch 4k monitor, I haven't needed to do anything in 4k yet. But uh, if you're doing an animation project, sometimes it is required to have 4k. So I have that just in case. And I recently invested in a, you know, a stand up desk that sits on top of my desk. So nice. you know, being at home all day, it's nice to stand up. You have a very similar setup to what we had when we first started out freelancing, so it's nice to hear. Yeah, mine was just a MacBook Pro and a tiny Wacom, that was it. I mean, something, you know, even though it's small, like you can still do so much with it. And I love how portable it is. Most of my family is back in Vancouver, so mm -hmm. I often go home to visit and I could just bring my whole workstation with me, which is, you know, fantastic. That's perfect. That's exactly what you want. So you mentioned that you do a lot of your your stuff is on the iPad now. Do you, like any kind of like traditional preliminary sketches or anything, or are you quite happy just working full on digital for everything? If I'm doing a 2D project, I always start out with a pencil sketch. There's just something about it that I feel like I can't replicate it digitally. And for me, when I'm just doing initial thumbnail sketches, I want to be super fast. And you know, I'm super scribbly. If you see my thumbnail sketches, like you, if you're not me, you probably can't even tell what's going on in them. It's just like shapes and blobs and <laughs> things like that. But you know, it helps me to quickly figure out different layout opportunities and what kind of approach do I want to take. And then usually I'll do a bunch of random little thumbnail sketches, and then I'll refine it down to a couple or three. And then I'll sketch those in more detail. And then once I pick one that I know I want to go with, then I'll sketch it out a little bit better. And then I'll take a picture on my iPad and trace over it in Procreate. Um, I find, you know, with pencil and paper, you have a much better sense of scale mm -hmm. because with a digital tablet, like you can make it any size you want. So I feel like it's easy to kind of lose a sense of what that would look like physically. So I think, yeah, I, I just enjoy doing that. There's that risk of zooming in, isn't it? Just and then not pulling out and you spend so much time in like one corner. Yeah. Uh, or if you just make the text or something too small and you realize if you printed it physically, it's just not legible or it's way too big. So talk to us a little bit about your client review process then. Like when do they come into your process? I definitely, I keep them in the loop throughout the whole thing, really. So it depends on the kind of project, obviously. But, you know, something, say it's a 2D illustration, you know, I'll initially talk to them, I'll get their ideas, I'll get reference materials from them. And then, you know, I'll send over the contract, the timeline, outline, deliverables, all that kind of stuff. And then I don't show them the really scribbly, ugly thumbnails, obviously, because <laughs> they would just see that and be like, what is this? <laughs> but uh, once I refine those thumbnails into a better sketch, then I'll send that over to them with no color, nothing fancy, mm -hmm. just so they can get an idea of the layout and the contents on the page and they can confirm if it's good. And then once I get that confirmation, then I'll refine the sketch some more, add in anything they wanted to add in and then send that back to them. And then if I get the go-to, then I'll add color. I usually don't go full on and add all the color. I'll usually just kind of block out the colors and not do any shading or complex rendering. 
and then I'll send them that just to show them what kind of color scheme I'm going for to make sure that they like it as obviously it's their image. I want to make sure that they think it looks good. And then once I get, you know, the thumbs up, then I'll just go right to the end and render everything. And usually there's some last minute little changes once everything is finally rendered. You know, with an animation project, it's basically the same except the thumbnail sketches is storyboard. And then I usually don't do an animatic. I just will build assets. I'll send them those assets and style frames. They'll confirm it and then I'll animate them. Nice. That's like very much like in a nutshell. <laughs> do you have like a specific approach when it comes to researching the subject? Do you have like a specific formula that you go through or like where would you start out? Say a client approaches you with a brief and... What's your first step, I guess? (laughs) That's, you know, a hard question for me because I find I always, I'll dive right into the research and then just kind of get into that, you know, flow state of researching where I don't even know exactly how I got to the references I find. (laughs) I just dive down the research hole. (laughs) Just a big rabbit hole, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm one of those weird medical illustrators who actually enjoys the research phase. (laughs) So typically, you know, I'll get references from a client, you know, if they're publishing their own research, you know, they'll give me their manuscript and papers that is related to the subject matter. So I'll take those, I'll read over them, I'll try and find key terms, things that, you know, stand out to me as the most important part. And then I'll do, you know, a Google search of those terms and try and find other research articles, obviously from reputable sources and, you know, high impact journals. And then I'll just kind of go down this research of papers. And, you know, I also will look up, like, I'll literally look up a scientific term on Google Images, (laughs) which, you know, maybe isn't the best way, but often, you know, I'll scroll down, I'll find an image that, you know, maybe looks like something I want to use, and I'll just make sure it's from a good resource. Mm -hmm. As you look up more things, you realize other things, or it links to something else. And then I follow that link or that reference. So I find it's very, once I get into it, it's kind of a natural process of just, you want to understand the subject as a whole. You just fill in the gaps, like, okay, I know this, I'm missing this part, I'll look up that. And you kind of start, it's like a puzzle, you know, and then once you see the big picture, you realize, okay, this is what I want to show of this picture. Kind of set a certain amount of time for yourself to do that, or do you just give yourself as much time as you need until you feel like, right, I got this, I'm comfortable? Yeah, I I never really put a time limit on my research phase, Mm -hmm. uh, because I like to do it until I'm comfortable with the material. And I also don't like to just take what the client gives me. I like to always supplement it with my own research, Mm -hmm. uh, because I'm the type who I tend to over-research everything because I really like to understand everything that I can before diving into the visuals. Mm -hmm. I suppose that's the same with every project in the medical illustration industry, isn't it? Our pre-production is the longest part and then we go into production Mm -hmm. once we've understood the science. But does it affect your deadlines at all? Do you you have tight deadlines or do your clients understand that you have a certain amount of time and they're pretty loose with the deadlines? I find that in general, my projects are usually fairly flexible. With the research phase, I find it's never gone over a ridiculous amount of time where I need to scale back the deadline. Mm -hmm. Usually what takes the most time is after I start making the visuals, when the client wants revisions, that's what takes up all the extra time and what makes me need to push back deadlines. So I find the research phase, you know, because it's so crucial, you need that foundation to make a good image. The people I'm working with are scientists. They understand that they want to make sure that it's accurate and I'm actually showing the science as it should be as well. So I find that's never really an issue. It might help our listeners just understand what your turnaround time is, because that's a big question that people ask us. It's like, how long should I be spending on something? And you're doing it and you're successfully completing projects. Tell us a little bit more about that. 
it's hard because every project is different. Mm -hmm. So every project needs a different timeline. I typically, you know, I've been actually very booked, so I can't even take on quick projects. So if there's something under a two-week turnaround, I usually say no, mm -hmm. uh, just because I know my schedule is too busy and it's just going to be hectic and they'll probably get frustrated. So I just avoid that. So I have done a couple things under two weeks, but usually those are very straightforward. The client knows exactly what they want. They send over everything and I do it. Bam. Other things in general, I would say like a typical illustration is usually around a month, maybe a month and a half. And then depending on additional revisions, which happen very often, <laughs> I find it can go over. And I've been trying to, in my contract that I send to them, I try and factor in the time that the client has to review something. So I'll say, you know, here is my projected date of deliverables I need to get to you, but I can only meet those deadlines if you get back to me in two days with your revision, yeah. just so it keeps on track. If the client is taking longer to respond to something, they usually acknowledge that is, you know, their fault. So they're flexible with the deadline in that case. On average, one to two months is kind of my usual project range. I think it's just the smart way to work is like you're, you're factoring in these times for all these reviews. I know that when I was doing some freelance, it was a mistake of need to have loads of projects and then you need to get really fast. So they'll be like, I would be just mm. guessing what their deadline was and just promising it much faster than what was maybe actually feasible. <laughs> and then I would just yeah. be constantly just chasing my tail. So it sounds like you've got everything quite well structured. Well, that's after a while. Like at the <laughs> beginning, it was not like that. I, I definitely, you know, had, it was quite a bit of a learning curve in the beginning and I took mm -hmm. on too much work and I gave deadlines that were too soon. Yeah. So I was working day and night all the time. So yeah. it's a process. You have to learn through mm -hmm. trial and error. Now I know, you know to always try and overestimate how long it's going to take because mm -hmm. it always takes longer than you expect. Mm -hmm. And it still does for me. I, yeah. I still always find myself you know, rushing at the end. <laughs> it's always nice to have a good day or two kind of buffer time scheduled in just so that you know that things will go wrong, but mm -hmm. it's okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So in terms of just your kind of day to day structure, like how would you structure your kind of regular work day? Uh, I feel like my structure has completely fallen apart lately. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. That's totally you know, <laughs> the deeper we get into this pandemic and, and in freelance with the flexible schedule, I just I feel like things have been so repetitive lately. I, I'm sleeping in later and later. <laughs> but, you know, on a good day, typically what I'll try and do is you know, wake up and then, you know, make my morning coffee or tea and then drink that while I'm going through emails. Uh, sometimes, like, literally, my morning emails can take up to two hours of just responding to clients, sending over invoices for finished projects or receipts if someone has paid their invoice. If someone has a revision and I get that email in the morning, then immediately I'll write down in Asana, make revisions on this day because it's so easy to read an email and then forget about it mm -hmm. and then realize later, oh, I have revisions I need to make. <laughs> so um, a lot of my morning is literally just boring administrative tasks. You know, once I get through that, usually my afternoon is dedicated to production time. At the beginning, when I was taking on two new projects at once, I was jumping all over the place. So I was working on many projects in a single day and also in between client meetings. It was not an ideal structure because I kept having to shift my headspace. Yeah. So mm -hmm. now that I have it to maybe working on one or two projects a day, mm -hmm. you know, I can really focus and set, you know, a solid chunk of time to work on one task. And I find that works well for me. And then I also, you know, I always make sure to carve out time for lunch because I think it's good to step away from the computer for a bit yes. and, you know, 
I'll move from my desk to my living room table <laughs> and like, uh, eat my lunch or something. Preach, please. Um, that is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or I'll go out for a walk and, you know, buy lunch at a local business, you know, support local yeah. businesses, <laughs> uh, things like that, uh, just to break up my day. And I do often, you know, work into the evening because I am a night person mm-hmm. and I tend to get more solid chunks of work time done in the evening because usually you're not getting emails and things like that as well. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a typical day. And, you know, obviously if there's a client meeting, I'll schedule that usually in the early afternoon or the morning. So you mentioned that you do your scheduling in Asana. Are yeah. there other kind of productivity tools that you're using to help kind of manage your time? I know that we've used Asana mm-hmm. past as well. It's mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. very useful for scheduling time. I'm just wondering about your experience on that tool or other things that you have. There's four programs that I really rely on for keeping on schedule and maintaining my productivity. So obviously the first one is Asana, since I already mentioned that. Mm. So Asana I use just for setting tasks and deadlines. As soon as I get a new project, I'll estimate the timeline of the project and I'll put in the milestones as tasks in Asana. I end up usually shifting those around, um, but that's totally fine. Um, and then I'll use Google Calendar to actually schedule out my day. So if I have an immediate deadline and I know I need to dedicate like four hours to finishing this one task, I'll schedule out four hours in Google Calendar. And obviously I will schedule my client meetings with that as well. Other than that, I also use OneNote a lot. Every time I'm in a client meeting, uh, I'm taking notes in OneNote to, you know, remember what we spoke about and record any revisions that they want. You know, in OneNote, I'll have a section for archived projects or potential clients and for current projects that I'm working on. And then I'll have a folder within that for each client. And then I'll have a file or a page, whatever you want to call it. I'll have a page for each meeting. And then I also... In OneNote, I will record things such as if I'm doing research, like market research, or I'm reading a cool article about technology or science, I will save all of those links and maybe make some notes in OneNote. Also, I save a lot of portfolio websites or just cool websites that I like and artists. I'll save links to all of that in OneNote just so all of my you know inspiration and notes and research for everything is in one space. Lastly... I mentioned I had a fourth tool. I use Boosted, uh, which is an Android app. However, you know, it's just a basic time tracking app. I'm sure there's one on iPhone that works just as well. And I use that just to track the amount of time I spend working on a specific task for a project. I find, you know, at the beginning, it was really hard for me to get in the habit of tracking that kind of stuff. But it's so important to track that so that you can really realize how long you're actually taking. And when you're budgeting out your schedules for future projects, you have a better idea Mm -hmm. of how long it's going to take. And also things like administrative tasks take so much longer than you expect. And (laughs) you have to include that in your cost, which (laughs) is, it's hard to figure out how to do that. So when I look at my time tracking, I'm like, whoa, I spent two hours like applying to emails. That's two hours I'm not getting paid for. So I have to include that time in my budgets for a project. So that really helps. So do you charge by the hour? Do you bulk charge per project? I initially was doing bulk charging, but then I realized I was undercharging. So for a while, I tried doing hourly because then, you know, I would actually get you know paid for each hour I'm working. Mm-hmm. And then now what I do is I do a combination. If it's a project where I know the kind of work I'm going to have to do, I know the projected timeline, I'm very comfortable with this kind of project then I'll do a bulk charge. Mm -hmm. If it's something where it's a new kind of project, a new client, and I'm not really sure how long it's actually going to take, then I'll charge hourly just so that I don't end up going way over budget and have to email the client saying, 
oh, this is <laughs> taking much longer than expected. Yeah. We need to review the scope. I have found that works for me. I, you know, I think because I'm still pretty early in my freelance career and I'm still trying to figure out the best way to price things, that's working for me. But I know in general, you know, once you get a good feel for things, it's best to just do bulk charge. That's a really smart way of testing out the waters as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe a bit unconventional, but I found that that works for me. And there's just certain clients who they just constantly want to change things. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit unpredictable what they're going to ask and how long it's going to take. So I find clients like that. I'll just charge them hourly because then they know the set rate. They know that if they want a bajillion changes, like I'm going to charge them for all of it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it really depends. I think when we were starting out, Emily, or freelance, we had the bulk pricing, but then it was up to like three rounds of changes. And anything after that was by the hour and it was expensive Mm -hmm. by the hour, you know? And so (laughs) when you see that number, they're like, oh, no, okay, let's keep it. Let's really think about these revisions now. <laughs> like, yeah. we only have that. Yeah. Yes, I do include um, in my contract up to two revisions at each specific step. Oh, nice. Like, each deliverable. I find, like, even including that in my contract, often they just don't care. They don't listen. So I have to <laughs> remind them, like, we're at four revisions. I'm just reminding you that this is extra. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that makes you a great collaborator to work with because you tell them that. Some people don't. I want to make sure, you know, there's no surprises at the end when I send over the invoice. Mm-hmm. I'm all for transparency. So in terms of clients, how do you find clients or I guess how do clients find you? I feel like I'm a bit of a broken record saying that I'm lucky. (laughs) Uh, My COVID infographic that I posted because it did end up having such a huge reach specifically Mm -hmm. within scientific communities. Lots of doctors and scientists and researchers found me on Twitter or LinkedIn because Mm -hmm. of my COVID infographic. You know, at the beginning when I was still at InVivo, my email was flooded with, you know, requests for projects and I had to say no to them all because (laughs) I was still at InVivo. And then that was, you know, again, another reason why I decided Mm -hmm. to go freelance was I saw such a demand for it. Even now, like to this day, just this week, I got a project request and the researcher was saying like, oh, my boss gave me your contact information. He found it months ago and we were just like waiting till we had a project that you'd be good for. If you just create one piece that, you know, garners a lot of attention, Mm -hmm. it can really help you down the road. I feel like it's a bit of cheating the system almost because I feel bad. I have to say no to projects, but there's other people who are looking for projects. You know, I usually try, I have some other friends who are freelancers. If I can't take something on, then I'll give it to them Mm, uh, because there's always a need and there's always people who can fill that need. And often it's not me. (laughs) But yeah, so definitely most people find me on social media. I guess what I like most about your story is the fact that you created your COVID graphic just because you were just interested. It's not something that you were getting paid to do. It was not something that you were like, oh, mm-hmm. I've got a week and I'm getting paid to make this. You were doing it in your evenings and stuff like that. And I think that's where I would argue that you're not lucky. It's like you've put in that extra effort and you've got the you've got the right mindset. It's like you want to educate people. You want to further your skills. You want to do things that you enjoy doing. And that's you're reaping the rewards for your hard work that you have actually put in. <laughs> oh, I'm... I'm glad you actually mentioned that because I think it's important that people realize that they don't have to do what they think people will like. Just do what you enjoy. And usually there's other people who are going to enjoy that just as much as you. Mm -hmm. If you do things out of your own passion and your own desire to do things, you know, often that 
you know, is contagious. Usually there's a reason why you're so passionate about it. Usually people will see that. And I think that's kind of what happened with my COVID project. You know, it was a passion project. I just wanted to help people and offer what I could. And, you know, there's so few good free resources out there. You know, I'm all for, you know, helping people and I didn't want to charge people for the license. So I did, you know, Creative Commons. I wanted it to be as accessible as possible. And that's why it's red because, you know, it wasn't behind a paywall mm. and it was just mm -hmm. made out of pure passion. <laughs> Too often people see a successful person and they want they want that, right? And then they fall into a mm -hmm. trap of imitating that person, maybe in hopes of getting to where that person is, but they forget mm -hmm. that it was passion, hard work and, and just an interest in that mm -hmm. that got that person there in the first place. So yeah, your story mm -hmm. I think, is just Fantastic. You know, adding on to that too, you don't have to be the best at something. And, you know, I definitely am not the best in my field. I'm okay, but there's so many people who are just so much more naturally talented and they like draw this organ and it looks real. And I'm like, how did you do that? Like, I can't do that. But, you know, you don't have to be the best at it. You just have to be really good at putting yourself out there. And I would say the ideas are more important than how you execute it. You can make something that is gorgeous, but if there's no interesting content, people aren't going to care. It's about the meaning behind it, the idea behind it. Don't beat yourself up if it doesn't look great. You know, don't compare yourself to people too much. Just believe in yourself. Do what you think is a good idea. Oh, I'm getting shivers. This is great. <laughs> totally agree with it. I think in terms of marketing yourself and things like that, I think that's something that I know Annie and I believe quite passionate about is like, if you just keep putting yourself out there, just keep doing what you're actually passionate and mm -hmm. you don't need to feel icky about like marketing and things like that. I think that's something that a lot of the time people do feel a bit, oh, I need to go sell myself. But it's like, if mm -hmm. you're just making stuff completely out of passion, sharing it freely as you did, just putting your content out there to kind of help people, good things will hopefully come, but it's not the, <laughs> it's not the ultimate goal. Adding on to that too, a lot of it is timing. You know, if I had published my COVID thing now, mm -hmm. people wouldn't really care because they know COVID. I, you know, I felt pressure to get it out as soon as possible because I knew I was, medical illustrators are going to be all over this. <laughs> oh, yeah. I want to be one of the first. Yeah. So I was working hard to get that done as soon as I could. You were. And you were one of the first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's why I spread so many people at the time. Like, I remember when I was researching and I could not find any really good visuals for COVID. I could find, you know, like 3D models of COVID, but there was no, you know, infographic. There was no mm -hmm. visual about what it did to your body. So I saw that gap and, you know, I was like, I need to jump on this now because it's not going to be there for long. And I did and it worked out. So, you know, timing is also crucial. So we reached out to our Instagram audience to see if anyone had any specific questions. The first one was, I'd like to ask how life's changed after going freelance and if there's anything you miss from your previous work. Because I did go freelance in the middle of a pandemic, you know, everyone was already working from home. So in terms of my day to day, that didn't actually change that much because Adam Vivo, you know, I was still working at home at the same computers. So that aspect didn't change. What changed was as a freelancer, because you're working for yourself, I find in general, you're more motivated to do your work. You know, in industry, you're always working for someone else. But when you're working for yourself, you know, you have to hustle, you have to stay on track. So I had more motivation to actually do my work and to explore different kinds of projects 
projects that I wasn't doing in industry. What I missed the most is definitely working with people, particularly in person, but you know, no one's really doing that right now. But I think there is really something of value when you have a group of people and you're all throwing ideas at each other. And the way you, I think the best ideas come from collaboration. I, I feel like I am missing that because I have my ideas, but I know that it could be better if I was working with the team. That is something I miss a lot. I will work with people again. This is just you know, part of my journey. So we have another question. It's a PhD student in the area of neuroscience. So I guess they don't have the medical illustration training. They were asking whether or not you had any tips on how they could navigate into the freelance medical illustration career. I think, you know, often people are there, they know they like art and they're, they're scientists and they like art and they don't know how to use it. And sometimes doing one of the master's programs isn't super accessible or it's too expensive. I know there's such limited programs around the world too. So if you're in a country where there isn't a program, it can be a challenge to access that. You know, as a scientist, you already have a leg up, especially as a PhD researcher, you know, the hardest part of medical illustration, and that is understanding the science and figuring out what part of that science is the most important to communicate to whoever your audience is. That is the fundamental you know, building block of all medical illustration. And you don't have to be super artistically inclined to be a good medical illustrator. There's a lot of people, I think, especially in 3D, if you're doing 3D animation, a lot of those people don't actually draw very well, or they say they're like, I'm a terrible drawer, <laughs> but they're a great animator because it's more technical. You know, within this field, there's so many different technical routes that you can go down, even if you're not super comfortable with your art. I think in terms of learning the, the fundamentals of design and the fundamentals of storytelling, that kind of stuff you can learn online in so many different places. The harder thing to learn is the science, but you have that. You know, I would do some sort of a design fundamental course. You know, there's lots of platforms like Coursera or, you know, university uh, online courses that you can take in design. There's lots of research papers on effective storytelling techniques. So, you know, just kind of trying to build up your skills on that art side so that it matches your science side. And then I think you'll have basically the fundamentals. Also, as a scientist, you likely know many other scientists already. So I feel like you already have those connections of the people who need that kind of work. So I think that's like a really good starting ground. And then, you know, as you do more work, usually word of mouth gets it out there or sharing on social media can get your work out there. I think that is, you know, the most probably effective way to build up your skills as someone with a science background. Very well put. I mean, that is going to motivate them to the stratosphere. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people feel like very overwhelmed entering this field from a pure science background. But the hardest part is the science. Well, I think maybe we should wrap up and end on this very motivational note. I would like to know, what are your plans for the future? We did talk a little bit about this at the very beginning before we started recording. I want to do so many things. And I've really come to terms over the past year or so what I need to do to bring myself to where I want to be. And, you know, where I want to be down the line is, you know, ideally, I would like to, you know, have my own company at some point where, you know, I'm actually working with people. I'm not just a solo freelancer. But to get there, I, I feel like I need to build up my production skills. And then after that, I would like to do some sort of an art director or creative director role. Because, you know, like I mentioned, I'm an ideas person. I often have all these ideas and then I get started on it and then I get distracted by other ideas and then I want to work on those. So I'm not a very good uh, like render monkey person who just hashes out amazing work and can just work for hours on end. Like I like jumping around. So I feel like, you know, a art director role would be something more suitable to me, but I need that production base. And I feel like 
I'm still lacking in that regard. That's kind of, I think, what you know I'm aiming to do is build up my abilities and specifically, you know, 3D animation because I'm definitely lacking in that regard. And also just, you know, basic design things and illustration, getting to that point where maybe I can have my own team. Well, that's really great that that's your career prospects. And I think you can definitely um, understand the mind darting around mindset. Definitely a good place to have lots of ideas if you are planning to get to stage that you're looking at having your own company and stuff. I think there's a quote or something about that's the kind of CEO mindset. It's like constantly like darting around and coming up with new <laughs> ideas constantly. So, so don't see that as a weakness. It might actually be a good thing. I think I've read that and keep telling myself that when I'm off on the tangent <laughs> looking at loads of different things. Yeah, I feel like it's a constant struggle. I want to improve my skills, but then I want to do everything. And there's so many programs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I feel like there's never enough time. So you got to take you know, those baby steps. Okay, I'm yeah. going to focus on animation now. I'm going to focus on this now and just slowly build it up. And you've done absolutely tons since you've only just graduated not oh that long goodness, ago as well. So oh. You've done those. <laughs> <laughs> it's really inspiring. So do you have any final things that you want to share with our listeners before you go? First of all, you know, thanks so much for listening in mm-hmm. and, you know, supporting my journey and also, you know, SciArt Now, which I believe you guys are the first and only medical illustration podcast. So, <laughs> you know, that is yeah, fantastic, you know, paving the way for this new kind of digital realm of medical illustration. And then other than that, you know, for anyone who is you know, either in this field or who wants to get into this field, I think it's really important to not compare yourself so much to other people who are maybe further along in their journey and to really get to know yourself and your own strengths and play to those. And that's something that's it's hard to learn. If you take time to reflect on what you're good at and why you enjoyed those things, you kind of start to get a feel of, of what your strengths are. And then you can build on that as you go. You know, I know we mentioned, you know, passion. You know, I once heard in this other podcast, which I think it was the author of Eat, Pray, Love. Mm-hmm. So she would always preach about following your passion because she got very successful at a pretty young age writing her book. And she was like, I just always wanted to be a writer. So I always did that. But most people, especially in this field, you know, people in this field are you know multidisciplinary people. They like so many things. And that's part of what draws you to medical illustration. Mm-hmm. And especially myself, like I never had one thing that I knew I wanted to do. So instead of following your passion, follow your curiosity. And usually if you follow your curiosity, it kind of leads you down the path you want to go anyway. Those are just words that I heard that I really resonated with. And I'm sure there's other people who needs to hear that out there. I just wrote that down. Great. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. Um, One last thing is where can people find you and your work? Mm -hmm. Feel free to share your website and any social media. I apologize that my name is long and confusing. My website is azuravesta.com, which is A-Z-U-R-A-V-E-S-T-A. Yeah. And you, I mean, you can just call me Avesta, but Azuravesta is my full name. And then you can also find me on Instagram at azuravesta.design. And you can find me on Twitter under just Azuravesta. Like literally just Google Azuravesta and you'll find me. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think there's another one of me out there with that name. (laughs) That's excellent. It's been such a pleasure talking to you and thank you so much. Really, really great. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm very excited about 
you know, all of this in this field and getting to meet you too, since I've been you know, following your work for quite some time myself. Oh. So it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you for coming on. It's been, been really great. <laughs> and thanks everyone for tuning in to our Learn Medical Art podcast. You can find our show notes and resources from this episode on our website, www.learnmedical.art. Give us a follow on social media at Learn Medical Art. And if you want to get in touch, you can reach us via our website or send us a direct message. If you like this episode, go ahead leave us a review we would love to hear your feedback stay tuned for our next episode where we share more tips tricks and advice on working in the medical illustration and animation industry